0: The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, markets, media, healthcare, venture capital, technology. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: FDA has gotten involved, which I think is incredibly important. It can't be the wild, wild west out there with these devices.
0: The headlines, they are everywhere. AI is coming for your job. AI is about to destroy Hollywood and what's left of the nation's newsrooms. Hey, if you want to raise some money, pivot to AI, and figure it out later. Full Disclosure's first foray into the brave new world of artificial intelligence and machine learning. We talked to a prominent venture capitalist steeped in all the opportunity and hype, as well as a Stanford physician who's fixated on how much this new frontier of technology can advance the field of cancer detection. Welcome to the machine, to quote Pink Floyd. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is FullDRadio.com. Again, FullDRadio.com. I invite you to join us in person in Charlottesville, Virginia, on the evening of Thursday, May 18th, for a very special Full Disclosure Live with Margaret Brennan, host of CBS's Face the Nation, from the historic Paramount Theater, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of WVTF Radio IQ News. Ticket info at WVTF.org and on Twitter at handle Robin Farzad. Thursday, May 18th at Charlottesville's historic Paramount Theater. Margaret Brennan of CBS's Face the Nation on Full Disclosure Live. Join us. Joining us from Northern California is Roxana donish Jew. She's a Stanford med dermatologist working on the intersection of AI and machine learning and precision health. I'm fascinated by some of the stuff you've posted on Twitter, Roxana, about the robot eyes helping human eyes detect melanoma and other skin cancers.
1: How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me here today.
0: You know, AI is very big buzz term everywhere on Twitter. Every company is trying to invoke it. We're now an AI player, a machine learning play. It seems like if you juice up your press release with that, you'll get a higher valuation from Silicon Valley. But I'm fascinated again by how this can help the detection of skin cancer, which is an elusive game, decidedly dependent on the eyes of the derm or the oncologist, a small freckle somewhere could conceivably metastasize into a lot worse. I'm reminded of the mole on the bottom of the late Bob Marley's foot, right? And all the various other things that can happen. So talk to me. When did you first get introduced to this field? You were pretty early on it.
1: Yeah, I mean I remember reading about it a couple years ago and what was going on with the field of computer vision which is a field that basically takes images and tries to make predictions based on those images of what is going on in that image. And so as someone who was getting ready to do dermatology training at that time, I thought, well, You know, as humans, that's usually what we do in training. We look at lots of examples of what a skin cancer looks like and basically learn what the patterns and features are to distinguish them from benign lesions. And so it seems quite possible that that is something that you could then train A AI algorithm to do. Now, since, since having some of those thoughts and actually spending several years doing research in this space, it always turns out that things are not as clear cut and as easy as you hope. But I do think that I think there's a lot of promise in this space. And I think the important thing is figuring out, you know, what is the reality that we can create versus cutting through what's been a lot of hype?
0: Dr. Donish, you take me back to medical school or your residency or various internships. How are you benchmarked in terms of detecting suspicious lesions? There's a lot of noise out there. There are certain freckles that may or may not be, what, irregular around the margins. Right. I'm thinking of what was invoked in that Sopranos episode by Tony Soprano. But how are you judged then? Is there, is there Are there expert eyes over you? Or was machine learning kind of as a benchmark any part of your formal education?
1: Oh, no. Machine learning was not part of my formal education. Um, Just how a medical resident learns and a resident is someone who's graduated from medical school, but is undergoing more specialized training. You see a lot of patients, but you have a senior physician with you as well. So you go in, you do the skin check, and then the senior physician comes in and does sure. their assessment and gives you feedback on whether or not they agree about what lesions should be biopsied and what lesions shouldn't be biopsied. You get a second layer of feedback when you actually do the biopsy and you see what the results are. However, you can tell that there could be imperfections in that system. So like if the senior physician misses something, you might not learn that. You might miss that. Um, And I think, you know, this idea of what is the ground, what we call what is the ground truth, like what are, true, you know, what are things that are the true cancers versus not is actually one of the difficulties when you're designing these model systems, because these AI algorithms often need labeled examples of what is a benign lesion, what is a malignant lesion in order to be able to learn the important features. And so, if your examples are not properly labeled, that can cause an issue in the process.
0: Doctor, step back for a minute if you will for our listeners and explain the mechanics of of skin cancer how this goes from being something decidedly topical and superficial to I guess subcutaneous and worse i mean is the is the is the killer in the metastasis? How does it work? when is it caught? How in the world could you possibly look at every freckle on a body or every suspicious legion times Thousands of patients. I mean, unpack all of that for me.
1: Yeah. So, um, the most, I will first say that the most common two types of skin cancer, which are basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma, basal cell carcinoma very rarely metastasizes. Not to say that it's impossible. I've seen some uh, rare cases. Squamous cell carcinoma has a little bit more potential to metastasize but is usually caught early enough that it's not an issue. It's really melanoma that is the one that has the most metastatic potential and is is the most deadly of the three that I've mentioned. Now, of course, there are other exceedingly rare types of skin cancer, which I won't get into today, but um, melanoma is the one that uh, that we worry about. And when I do a skin exam, I'm basically looking at my eye, using my eyes to sort of see what lesions kind of pop out. So it doesn't mean that you necessarily look closely at every single lesion because mo- many of the lesions are just very uniform looking. They don't look worrisome. They're nice and small and round and, you know, uniform color. And so I will then take a closer look with a, ma- a special device that has uh, magnification sure. and special lighting at the- any one of them that sort of pops out to me.
0: So it becomes deadly, let's say the melanoma. I mean, I I, I know you're, <laughs> it almost sounds like something out of Seinfeld, somebody coming up to you at a wedding and saying, oh, do you mind if I show you what's on my shoulder in the ladies room? But there is a big part of you by dint of iteration and how much experience you have in this that can detect if a skin lesion is problematic right off the bat. I mean, if if the colors or edges are irregular.
1: So the thing is that Yes, we have undergone training to sort of be able to detect features. Um, some of it, you know, I could describe to you, there's the ABCDs of melanoma, which talk about asymmetry, the border, the number of colors, diameter of the lesion, and whether the patient has reported evolution or lesional change. Which is obviously not something you can pick up with your eyes unless you have a prior photo. But there's this other thing where we call it the ugly duckling sign. So the lesion that just looks a bit different than everything else. So there are these different things as well as our training that helps us pick up what which lesions that we're most concerned about. And the idea behind using AI to help us here is that if you know these computer vision algorithms also learn features. Um, and they're, most of them are pretty black box, so we can't really, um, tell what features that they're using. Though my colleagues and I have been doing some really interesting research recently to try to basically dissect out what the algorithms are using to make their decision. But the idea behind using AI is that in the same way that you train a human with many examples of what a, You know, a melanoma is versus not melanoma. You could actually train an algorithm to do the same thing, and it could be a support tool for physicians and physicians. I mean, depending on what research study you look at, you know, I biopsy probably on average, according to the research, I don't know my exact, you know, personal numbers, probably about you know, nine lesions that I suspect to be a melanoma before detecting a true melanoma.
0: Full disclosure, do stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzat. My guest is Dr. Roxana Donish ju She is a uh, dermatologist at Stanford interested in bridging new technologies such as machine learning with clinical medicine. I mean, we're talking in this example about kind of unpacking the fascinating you know, bleeding edge, the frontier of uh, using it in in terms of melanoma detection. Uh, Dr. Drew, you looked askance at one of these, you know, talking about false positives, uh, one of these reports in the news this week that a doctor located uh, a ridiculously small lesion, you know, an Oregon Oregon dermatologist found a 0.65 millimeter mole, the world's smallest skin cancer spot under a woman's eye. And you said you're calling for caution in this, that we're probably celebrating over overdiagnosis. I mean, you alluded to this earlier, but what is the problem with that, honestly? If, if it catches something like that and you go in and, and you biopsy it, is there an element of crying wolf? Or are you taxing the system? Are you making people complacent to the fact that the overwhelming majority of these skin spots are not going to be problematic?
1: Yeah. So I think, again, difficult to make an assessment of exactly, I don't know what that pathology report showed. I will even say that studies have shown that there's variability even among the same pathologists. There was a research study where they sent out slides to pathologists, the same slide to multiple pathologists, the same slide to the same pathologist months later. And there was variability in their melanoma diagnosis call, even amongst the same individual reading the same slide a couple months apart. So there is definitely some noise to this as well on what is diagnosed. And so... I just worry about technology that starts capturing, that starts identifying lesions very, 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 very early lesions that actually, you know, were not going to turn into anything bad. And so, you know, you were saying like, what it, you know, what what's the negative there, right? Like, and as I mentioned, um, you know, we need to get better at figuring out which of these issue lesions are going to be truly problematic versus not. The issue is you give someone a diagnosis of a melanoma, and then they have to have this very extensive surgery, surveillance, all the anxiety associated with that diagnosis, carrying that sort of on their medical record if they are trying to... But isn't
0: the upshot vigilance, and I'm not trying to be sadistic here, but if if I... My impression is always that skin cancer, you know, my aunt and cousin are dermatologists... Uh, in LA and in Miami, they've always been urging people to be more vigilant about this. The, you, people who were raised in the 1950s and 60s who slathered suntan lotion on themselves and were fair-skinned and think this is kind of a, a a tolerable chronic problem to have, but in fact, it can become deadly. And I was always under the impression that the bias leans toward kind of under-reporting and under-detection. So would it be that harmful if AI was an extra nudge, kind of the way Katie Couric was with, with colonoscopies.
1: Right. Um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be vigilant. And particularly if you have risk factors like excessive sun exposure and, you know, blistering sunburns and things like that. I'm just saying that any technology we develop, we have to study its impact on patients and the health system, Right. Before when we're, as we're thinking about implementation, because we want our technology to do exactly that for, you know, if this technology encourages patients who are at high risk of skin cancer and helps detect those skin cancers in individuals earlier, that's great. If it actually improves outcomes for patients. If it turns out that the technology leads to more extra biopsying and not an actual improvement in catching more um, skin cancers that might have been problematic down the line, then the technology is not really improving the patient outcomes. That's all I'm saying.
0: Walk me through what the data set is like. I mean, uh, ostensibly, you can have decades of high-res images of uh, lesions, cancerous and otherwise, to feed into this big machine learning data set and, and kind of train it and iterate through it and feed real-time data. When were you first introduced to this? Um, and wh- what, is, what is the existence of that data set kind of retroactively right now? I imagine all these dermatologists and oncologists have these on file and increasingly the photography, the caliber has become more digital and more high res. So you have more to feed into the system.
1: Yeah, so you know the data is at the is at the heart of the algorithm development, and it's also maybe the part that can cause is the most difficult aspect and can cause you know the most issues around the algorithm development. And so you know, a lot of hospitals have image data, longstanding image data from years. Um, some actually, some systems do not. In radiology, there's a lot of public data sharing of images for developing AI algorithms. This is less so in dermatology. And of course, patient privacy is incredibly, incredibly important. The biggest issues that I see in this development of AI and dermatology is just one, having enough data from, you know, multiple sites because a lot of systems don't share data with each other. They silo the data. And, um, one of my areas of significant interest is making sure that the data is representative and represents diverse skin tones. You mentioned, um, Bob Marley earlier. And so that's actually been an area of research for me is studying how algorithms do across diverse skin tones because most of the AI algorithms in dermatology that have been developed have been developed on images of skin cancer on white skin and have excluded images of skin cancer on brown and black skin. And what I showed in a recent um, research yeah. study- Yeah, let me quote yeah. from the
0: abstract because you, you read right into that. Yeah. Uh, for your paper, widely quoted paper in Science Advances was in the summer of 2022, if I may read from it, an estimated 3 billion people lack access to dermatological care globally. AI intelligence, AI may aid in triaging skin diseases and identifying malignancies. However, most AI models have not been assessed on images of diverse skin tones or uncommon diseases. Thus, you and your team created the Diverse Dermatology Images Dataset, the first publicly available, expertly curated, and pathologically confirmed image dataset with diverse skin tones. You showed that state-of-the-art dermatological AI models exhibit substantial limitations on the data set, particularly on dark skin tones and uncommon diseases. It seems to be going back to, you know, Stats 101, kind of a sampling error that you're not, you know, that this, this is starting with a fallacy to begin with. I remember when, I don't know if it was Google or Apple or someone outside of the realm of cancer and medicine was having issues with photo identifying software and people of color right? And and right. Facebook and tagging and geolocation data. So this is always a bias that skews toward very white Silicon Valley, Western mindedness.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so that was one of the reasons that we did this um, study. As you mentioned, we looked at two different things, diseases that were uncommon. So, you know, if you have a skin cancer that is not one of the very commonly seen ones because there are other types. And also, if you have a skin cancer appearing on brown or black skin, these algorithms do far worse when they're trained on only images of skin cancer on white skin. And so this is a huge problem in my mind in terms of equity, especially if when you're talking about implementing these algorithms where there are existing health disparities that already exist in terms of outcomes For patients who have skin cancer, you know, black patients, brown patients who have skin cancer, studies have shown that amongst humans, even these patients are diagnosed at a later stage, it's it's not recognized. And so it is particularly important that any AI algorithms that we develop have good performance across diverse skin tones, or, or else we're just going to actually worsen existing health disparities. And I find that to be completely unacceptable.
0: And I'm also thinking back to uh, the surprise of everyone. This was before your time as a doctor, but the first daughter, the former first daughter, Maureen Reagan, who died at the young age of 60 of skin cancer back in 2001. She was diagnosed with melanoma in 1996, only after it appeared as a large pigmented mole on the back of her right thigh. She had extensive testing and and succumbed to this merely five years later. We don't talk about skin cancer often with people of color. It seems to be something that disproportionately hits Northern Europeans, people with very fair skin. But you're right about the sampling issue and the fact that you underscore that, I, I guess, this deficit of $3 billion in terms of access to dermatological care, which brings to mind, Dr. Dawn Drew, the power of the smartphone. And, and I know you must get asked this a lot. If you can tweak and improve this technology enough, if it can become disciplined and reliable, I mean, then the way you're seeing chat GPT right now is kind of janky in some respects, or if you've seen AI create a beer commercial or a pizza pizza commercial, and it looks like it's out of X-Files. But if this becomes somewhat reliable over time, can we get to the holy grail, especially with the unlock of telemedicine, of in dermatology, people taking photos of their lesions and uploading them, into an algorithm or into an app? I mean, is that something that that I guess the dermatological imagination entertains?
1: This is, so the way that I've been viewing things, and I think I love your examples where it's like, yeah, some of this stuff is like, it's good, but it's not quite good enough, right? And so there's no. A lot it's been of... haunting
0: my nightmares, frankly. Yeah. I, I urge everybody out there to Google AI generated beer commercial or AI generated Pizza Hut commercial. It's actually terrifying. I don't know why it's so hard to cr- these eyes look like they're you know. Th- th- I, <laughs> I, I I can't describe it, but if I think about it, I'm not going to go to bed. But anyway, continue.
1: Right, right, right. No, I I I actually like that we have these sort of. Um, these sort of examples for me to kind of refer to, you know, there are a lot of people who have published papers that say AI can beat dermatologists. And I hear this all the time. Hey, I've seen all the research papers about how AI can beat dermatologists at diagnosis. So why isn't it on my phone yet? Why isn't it in clinic yet? And the reason is because many of these tasks, these, you know, AI can beat dermatologists tasks are done in a very sort of constrained environment which is not actually representative of what happens in real world clinical care. And these algorithms have a lot of issues around robustness when you take them out into the real world. And as I've mentioned before too, like there's also a um, diversity issue where we need to make them better on diverse skin tones. But let's put that all aside and pretend that we do, as you said, solve some of these problems because I think it's really within the realm of possibility that if we really focus our minds, we know what the issues are and we work to address them. What does the world look like to me? To me, I think the best, you know, case scenario is creating a tool that is complementary to physicians. And so, for example, you mentioned how there's a lack of access to dermatological care. There is a lot of, you know, primary care physicians who our doctors and trained, but they're maybe not specialists in skin, and so empowering them with a tool that could improve their accuracy at detecting skin cancers that they can then send over to dermatology if that's available, or manage it in whatever existing sort of framework there is for them would be very powerful. I worry about direct to consumer unless it's been properly vetted and tested, um, because at least. You know, with if you have a physician in the loop, um, they can use their best judgment to override if they think that the AI is wrong, because no AI is perfect, just like no human is perfect. But there have been studies that have shown that human AI partnerships can lead to um, improvement in the humans performing the task. AI can also actually steer the human wrong. There have been studies that show that too, unfortunately. But I think the important thing for me here is, as a scientist, is we need to do the research. We need to do, if we're going to make claims about what AI is and isn't going to do, particularly in healthcare, which is a very sensitive thing, we need to have the appropriate types of research studies where the technology has been tested in clinic, looked at outcomes, make sure it's performing fairly, make sure it's actually improving outcomes for the patients. And I know, I mean, I live in Silicon Valley. I'm surrounded by it. My friends and my spouse are all (laughs) engineers. So I know all about, you know, the whole Silicon Valley mantra of trying to move fast and break things. And I agree that there's a lot in healthcare that we can improve. I think there's a lot of things we can improve. However, you cannot move fast and break things in healthcare, you know, because, you know, the outcomes are the lives and well-being of our patients.
0: As you tweeted on your prolific uh, Twitter handle, Roxana Donish Jew, quote, I want to ask a question from physicians. If someone came to you and said, hey, I have a new medication, not repurposed. And here are a few examples of how it helped my patients. No trial. Would you use it? So why would you implement an AI model with only anecdotal evidence? Close quote.
1: Yes. Actually, that's funny you should bring that up. That actually came up after I spoke to a company who I will not name here. And I asked, you know, it was a company that was trying to sell dermatology AI to healthcare systems, you know, saying, here, give our technology to your primary care or emergency room physicians, and it's going to help them diagnose skin disease better because, you know, as you've mentioned, there's not always a dermatologist available. And, of course, the first question I asked this company is, what research trials have you done? Can you show me good data that over a certain number of patients where you implemented this, you know, this actually improved diagnosis, this improved outcomes? And the answer was no, we have no trial data. And here, let me show you an example. Look at this picture. Can you diagnose it? Look, the AI diagnosed it. But that's not how we actually, you know, I was make that's why I made that sort of joke is like we don't, you know, with medications, we don't say, Oh yeah, here's a, here's an example of a drug that's never ever been tested and we never did a trial for it. It's not a drug that's been previously approved for something else. I gave it to a couple people and it looks like it works. No, we don't do that. We do randomized controlled trials. We have you know, an intervention arm and a control arm. We have to show efficacy. You have to do all these things. You have to go through a regulatory approval process, which, by the way, the FDA has gotten involved in the regulation and approval of medical AI, which I think is incredibly important. It can't be the wild, wild west out there with these devices.
0: In my humble opinion for my humble dollar, Dr. Donish Jew. And I know, you know, you lament offline that the immigrant parents wish that you would become one of these maybe Beverly Hills or South Beach <laughs> cos cosmetically uh trained dermatologists and not stuck in the lab and in in science journals as much as you are. But there's still hope if you want to get a fat term sheet in Silicon Valley for you Mm. and I to collaborate on my idea Mm. of uh, iPhone-based skin tag removal, right? We would call it, (laughs) right, it would plug right into the FireWire port or the USB port and we would call it, wait for it, Tagger T-A-G-R. Now that I've opened (laughs) that up to the rest of the world, expect to get tons of calls, especially because a VC was on this show. Roxana Donishju, clinical scholar of dermatology at Stanford Med. Uh, Wow, you are really at the nexus. You're covering AI and skin cancer, AI and machine learning and precision health. You are always welcome to come back on this show.
1: I'm always happy to be here.
0: Full disclosure, do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me from the Bay Area is Gaurav Gupta. He's partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners, focusing on early stage investments in AI and enterprise software. How are you, sir? I'm
2: great, Robin. Great to meet you.
0: I have so many questions, Gora, but let me wax like the old man that I am, if you'll let me for a minute. I have my college reunion, my 25th college reunion coming up. I don't know if I'm going to go yet, but I just remember distinctly a handful of gee whiz moments in my technology worldview or coming of age. Let me take you back to freshman year of college, 1994, when we got our laptops and I opened up, it was a browser called Mosaic, and you got to pull up Chrysler.com and Playboy.com. And I was like, oh my gosh, the World Wide Web, nothing is going to be the same. All right, stay with me. Fast forward to senior year, I had my first MP3 ever long by Foo Fighters. Somebody had it on a shared drive, and the next thing I know, it's the turn of the century. I'm with coworkers at my job at the offices closed. It's sometimes in the autumn of 2000. You were probably a hatchling by then, but stay with me. Someone's opening up Napster and downloading every song ever made. <laughs> I mean, it was a gee whiz unlock moment, as was the iPhone, as was Bluetooth in my car, where I turn back and say, wow, this is going to change everything. My question for you is, what is the analog to that, the equivalent in AI? Because we see so much hype about AI. I have the University of Pennsylvania Gazette here, college in the age of chat, GPT. When or where did you have that moment?
2: So I think this is uh, what's happening in AI and generative AI is bigger than all those moments. I had the Google moment in college myself, right, where you could find anything at any time, whenever you wanted, and obviously the mobile phone revolution. But I think this is bigger, and you know, it started to become very clear late last year that something was happening
0: with you know the. Where were of- you? What was that moment? I always ask guests to tell it a- yeah, tell us that moment I? of where was yeah. I? That moment of inception. I think it was last year, OpenAI
2: had two big launches. One was Dolly 2, which was one of the first kind of revolutionary text-to-image generators. And even if you're not an artist, it was just unbelievable that a computer machine could generate such artistic, beautiful things. So that was one. And then two, I think, was the the launch of GPT-3, which you suddenly were interacting with something that could... Almost reason like a human, and, and you know, and certainly when ChatGPT came out later on, it sounded like one. And so I think those were the moments for me. I, I mean, I've been around AI and machine learning for a long time, and and frankly, the the, the improvements were always incremental. You could always find the flaw in yeah. it, and you could always know what it was. But those moments were like, I can't tell if this is human or not, and if I close my eyes, and so that's that's really that's really when it happened.
0: There are these ads going around that are very crude and and they haunt your nightmares, these AI-generated ads. I saw one for a fictional pizza place. I guess you could Google that. We'll hyperlink to it in the interview. There was one for a beer commercial and these people, they look like androids, like zombies. I hate them. I don't know. I don't understand how this crude AI technology can't get the eyes right or the eye contact or some basic things such as holding a 12-ounce can to your mouth. Why do the lips end up eating the plate? You know, there was an ad for McDonald's out, an AI-generated ad for McDonald's. It was a nightmare. I'm sure they're going to iron out these kinks. But why is it so screwy right now?
2: Yeah, so a lot of this technology is based on something called a transformer architecture, which was, you know, researched at Google uh, several years ago. And they wrote a, a very famous paper called Attention is All You Need. And fundamentally, what it talks about is this idea of, probabilistically predicting what should fill out a photograph or what should the next word that should occur in a paragraph and so all of these things are effectively done with you know mathematics called vectors and you know do something called prediction right it's all probabilistic it's in some ways, you can think of you know human evolution is probabilistic. Uh, you know we started off as the cell, right? And, and you know through a set of you know random actions, you know suddenly you know more intelligent life beings are formed, and it's a combination of all these probabilities. So these things are still being refined, and those probabilities you know create odd things. We've seen you know, the concept of hallucination in the language models, and exactly those kinds of things in these image models where you see hands missing or text is warped. But the reality is, is that these things are improving literally, you know, day by day on a weekly basis. Like there are now models that can get, you know, to, you know people don't show six fingers on their hands, whereas before that would happen. And so these things are improving quickly. These flaws are based on how they're built. And it's just mathematics.
0: How rapidly is that evolving, though? I'm thinking about evolution on the earth as you talk about something that took billions and billions of years. Some things are incredible to me. I saw your essay, for example, about democratizing generative AI, and there was that prompt, let me say, you cited an image from a Reddit user. I'm quoting here, stable diffusion generated the above image by adding... The prompt that I'm quoting a distant futuristic city full of tall buildings inside a huge transparent glass dome in the middle of a barren desert full of large dunes, sun rays, art station, dark sky full of stars with a shiny sun, massive scale fog, highly detailed, cinematic, colorful, close quote. And wow. I mean, yeah. it's it's exactly it's Pixar caliber, really good, and that would have taken a long time. And I was blown away. Similarly, by something, my aha moment that I have to show you, the application Mid Journey. There was a prompt for a 1950s model, and again, I'm going to hyperlink to it. It was so detailed, and. I'm just shocked that it generated something like a, a Natalie wood exactly what it was called for. If I were nitpicky, I would say that the 1950s man in the suit behind her kind of looks like a cyborg <laughs> but my point is that it's unbelievable that this has been created out of out of thin air
2: yeah it's worth like understanding how these things work right so effectively these models that you type that prompt is how does it know what all that text means right it's trained on real life examples it's trained on real photos that are labeled it's that you know that describe those various characteristics and the model takes those and tries to generalize them right and and that's how it, and, then, and then it tries to combine those things through you know a technique called diffusion and adds noise to it and then sort of like learns what these things mean it's, it's a high level description there're two challenges like it's still not perfect it could ideally if we had more data the model would be even trained better also, sometimes the data is wrong or flawed. It actually describes something that's not there. So these are the things that lead to the technology being imperfect today, but you asked how quickly is it advancing? Turns out as we add more data, as we improve the data, as we uh, make up for some of the flaws in the way they operate, you know, over the last, call it one year, I mean, we have seen dramatic improvements. Like, And literally, there's probably a new major model that's released by vendors like Stability, like Midjourney, like OpenAI, that comes out every six months. And it, we're just seeing ma- three or even six months, like massive improvements in each one.
0: if you are on the board of Stability AI, which is an open source generative AI company that's behind Stable Diffusion, which is this AI text to image generating technology, which is also very g whiz for me. I can spend hours on Twitter and Instagram and Reddit marveling at what is just a parenthetical free association thing that a computer can consummate, a series of computers or the hive mind of computers. So the other side of this is you're seeing all sorts of buzz at the New York Post headline level. Is AI coming for your job? And I'm thinking back to my magazine career. What about these copy editors, art, creative people who had to mock up things? This was intensely, you know, it was man hour intensive. What are the possibilities here for disruption in the very real world job market?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, there are lots of them. So, you know, I'll I'll describe two kinds. One, you know, we have these different kinds of models that perform different functions. One is these that we've talked about, the text-to-image models, right? And if you look at the creative industries uh, of today, much of the work and time and difficulties go into, you know, creating an image, you know, mocking up a... something for an animation or a movie or whatever it may be this is like very very human intensive even editing a video right can take you know months right and 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 certainly uh coming up with a new visual idea so these technologies today have already been used for ideation right and mocking things up right but
0: the reality is is that at a thumbnail level it was not ready for prime time.
2: It's not quite ready for prime time. Although we're also seeing active usage in things like gaming, where you know it, it doesn't you know it doesn't require perfection necessarily, right? Where you know they are able to constrain the models enough where they can actually use the technology in a real game. So I think we're we're talking about making people more productive, right? So for an artist, that it may take them months to come up with a new idea and then animate it in a certain way or or tune it. Like, one, they can select from a number of ideas just by prompting the model. But then two, these things can accelerate, you know, actually turning that into a real life, you know, piece of media or entertainment. You know, for example, it can even take 2D images and convert it into like very realistic 3D experiences. So you can imagine how that might play out in VR.
0: I saw the example of all the US presidents as kind of Pixar babies or as professional wrestlers. I don't know who did that. Yeah, I don't know if, we're, if it's mid-journey or if it's a different thing, but this stuff, as you see, is all over Twitter and Instagram now, and it's it's just so whimsical.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think then there's the what they call the LLMs, the large language models, that effectively create text and language from them. And I think those have an entirely new and even different set of opportunities, and I would argue even greater than just the image model. Because those things have evolved now, we've seen things with things like ChatGPT, um, to almost be conversational and using the techniques like it sometimes feels like they can reason. You can prompt these models with, you know, explain this thing to me, but also, you know, write it in a different style and and they can also start to like kind of make connections and relationships between different kinds of data. You know, there are a number of like early applications, whether it's a salesperson or even you or I writing an email, can it sort of predict what we want to write with all the context from our past activities? Could it automate emails? Could it automate customer service? But now we're even seeing like use cases in entire industries, for example, in the legal industry. You know, a lot of what lawyers do is, you know, take prior documents, prior art, you know, customize it for a particular client. You know, can you... Can you automate the you know the associate's job at a law firm, right? Or you know do a large degree of it? It's seeming increasingly possible. And so you know there's this idea that are we taking away jobs? Potentially, are we creating new jobs because we're making people more fundamentally productive? And you know you know that that are higher end jobs. I, I think that's absolutely true as well. So there's always two sides of a coin with any technological revolution. That's what's really exciting here.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Gaurav Gupta. He's a partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners. He's also on the board of Stability AI, where he's a board observer. It's an open source generative AI company that's behind stable diffusion. This is a really revolutionary text-to-image generator. Talk to me, Gaurav, if you will, about ChatGPT. It's getting tremendous press, the velocity of the pickup of ChatGPT. I understand Dwarf's you know, Instagrams, WhatsApp's launches, some of the most viral apps ever downloaded. I mean... Facebook in the yesteryear, this pickup, the tipping points were amazing, these hockey stick moments, but it seems like ChatGPT is at a whole different level. What happened there?
2: Yeah, so ChatGPT took fundamentally the technology that existed in in sort of an underlying model, GPT-3, GPT-4, and... Created an actual application that humans could interact with in a very, very natural way. And although that requires some behavioral change from you and I—we're not used to talking to computer and asking it questions and solve problems for us—it actually came very naturally, and in fact, it's become almost like a new, uh, it opened the minds for a lot of people that they could communicate with a computer, ask it for what it want, what they want, and and get an answer that they really understand. You know, versus like going on Google and searching for a bunch of things, on you know, looking up those links and trying to summarize it with themselves, ChatGPT would do that. And so I think it just made the technology so much more accessible. It's also launched hundreds, thousands of startups now trying to think about like what are the various applications in various domains to go do this. Similar. You know, what Stable Diffusion did in the image world for you know any sort of visual application, if you look at the top ten iPhone apps, right. um, you know most of them are built on something like Stable Diffusion and open source AI. What ChatGPT has also raised is questions of concern, right? Is this technology accurate? You know what does it mean when this technology is trusted and then ha- what they call hallucinates just gives you. Gobbledygook, like just incorrect information. Who controls this technology? Because it turns out it requires hundreds of millions, or even billions, to build more and more advanced models. And what happens when they're in the hands of a few and controlled by a few? Hmm. And so, you know, we now have a lot of controversy you know, around, you know, what is the future of these models? Who should control them? And and so, you know, ChatGPTs really sparked some of those conversations. I'm personally, so you know you know involved in stability AI. my involvement in stability AI comes from my interest in AI, but also my passion for open source. I've been an extremely active open source investor. I've worked at companies that have promoted open source and been successful public companies in the open source realm. And I've always believed that powerful technology is safer when it's open. When it's available to everyone, when it's auditable, when, you know, the world can build on top of it and really understand it versus just being sort of behind closed doors, being a, a closed API. And so that's one reason why, you know, I'm excited about stability, but just open source AI in general, because I feel like it has the potential to even democratize it further than what ChatGPT has done.
0: Gaurav, when are we going to see the everyday nudges of AI as, as kind of the tentacles come out? If you, for example, walk into a Starbucks, this idea that the app will predict and prompt you know what you want, your usual, it'll give you several bubbles, or your credit card company will use AI to flag questionable purchases. I mean, when are you going to see that tipping point for mom and pop? I'm thinking, again, back to my history, the Napster or modem or Netscape moment we're seeing hints when you go to Google Search or Autocomplete or Microsoft Word or certain things out there that are indeed kind of telling us that this era is is here.
2: Yeah, I think the, the mom and pop aspect is already arriving. You, you talked about your, your days in college. There's no question that many students or maybe even most right now are already trying to use this technology in various ways to help them out for, for better or worse. And um, so I think it's already infiltrated sort of the younger audiences where they're adopting it. It's now starting to be built into applications. So you have to remember this technology has only really become good enough in, call it, say the last six to nine months. And so almost every major application vendor is starting to think about how to put this into their product. Now they have to think about the potential harms and, and difficulties of doing it. But I expect in the next year that we'll see bits and pieces of this, you know, in a Starbucks app, for example. You know, it's really a question, though, of, you know, do these bigger companies move on it? Now, one of the things that's truly preventing, that could prevent that from happening is privacy concerns, security concerns, control concerns. And so a lot of these applications require you to take private data or your the data from you and I about our Starbucks purchase habits and put it in these models in order to get those recommendations right? And, you know, is that kosher? And do we really want to do that? And do we want to give our data to a third party, you know, vendor like an open AI? Uh, And then, you know, fundamentally, when we build these applications, are we beholden to them? Right? And so, you know, again, you know, kind of going back to the open source idea. That's kind of where, you know, I have a thesis that, no, not all of them will want to do that. A large chunk of people will want to have control over their destiny just like they have run their own databases, right? And they keep their own data and it's their data. They will want to have their own models that have control over the data that are trained on private data, and they can control the experience for the end consumer.
0: The trade-off being what? Less friction in interactions or you know, you get 5% off if you use a debit card with an RFID tracker tag. I, I can imagine the implications here for credit card companies and banks maybe anonymizing or, or sharing that information with merchants.
2: Yeah, so so that happens today, right? You know, data is shared and you know, oftentimes we give permission for those things without even knowing it when we sign up for something. I think that the question is that data is fundamentally ours but also the company that we're dealing with like the Visa or the Starbucks or whatever it may be and then they don't then necessarily share that more broadly with lots of other parties without our permission. The question is is that that data used then to train the OpenAI model? For example, and then our data is then used for the benefit of others, right? And is potentially let loose. Um, it's it's unclear, um, you know, how solutions to that will evolve, and those questions, those privacy concerns, and you know whether the proprietary vendors like OpenAI will solve that, or whether open source and being able to sort of keep your own and run your own will, will be the solution here.
0: In closing, Gaurav, indulge me maybe with some more whimsy. When are we going to see the first AI-generated song to top Spotify? I mean, so I go back to this freaky McDonald's fever dream AI commercial, again, which I'll hyperlink to for our listeners. It was atrocious. It was a nightmare. I can't get it out of my head. But the song was so catchy. And and one more for you. When are we going to see the first fully AI-generated Super Bowl commercial?
2: uh so so i think s- s- songs we've already seen some amazing productions from some artists who have employed ai to d- do a riff on one of their songs and it, and it and it's really really impressive so i think that's pretty short term you know maybe in a year i you know i don't know if it'll top the spotify charts but i i, I wouldn't be surprised a fully generated ai generated super bowl ad you know what does that really mean um I think AI is still a co-pilot and assist for those kinds of things, right? So they're going to be AI components that generate the audio and the video and the imagery, you know, but fundamentally there's a production quality to those things that, you know, I'm not sure, like you just type in like create me an ad that does X, Y, Z uh, and without some human input, it'd be better than not having human input. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I put a timeline on that, but, but probably more like a few years or more before we see something completely AI generated without human input that could be better than human input.
0: Gaurav Gupta, partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners where he focuses on AI and enterprise software, early stage investments. I will say that you co-led a series A on, on Stability AI and you're a board observer there. If you could check out the image generation machine, it's kind of mind blowing. And I imagine that the people at Pixar where it's super labor intensive and man hour intensive to make a movie must be taking notice. I hope so. Please, please come back. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. A shout out to our listeners on NPR member station, WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's source for NPR news. Also, catch me every week on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. Do not forget to join us Thursday, May 18th at Charlottesville's historic Paramount Theater. A special full disclosure live with CBS Face the Nation's Margaret Brennan. Tickets are at the Paramount's website, on my Twitter, and of course at wvtf.org. Thursday, May 18th, at Charlottesville's historic Paramount Theater. Full Disclosure presents CBS Face the Nation's Margaret Brennan. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening, and back with you next week.